Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer, and welcome to episode 17 of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. Today, we are taking our episode from a Facebook Live that we did at the beginning of the month with local Washington, D.C. pastor Bill Rydell, pastor of Redemption Hill Church. Uh, we brought Pastor Bill in today to discuss uh, the church's role in perpetuating racism and slavery. Uh, and so a lot of the discussion that we are going to be pulling from uh, came from a sermon of his uh, that he did over the summer on the same topic. And so uh, that's what we're going to cut to now, and we hope that you enjoy it. Yeah, I think growing up, I mean, I grew up in, it was just outside of Chicago, but very typical white suburban setting. And like my high school it was 95% white. Um, and so our church had partnerships with other churches in, in the city and things. And so it was always, I don't know, it, it was a fairly stereotypical 80s childhood, basically, and understanding and not lack of understanding of race and being taught things like colorblindness is the key and having to undo some of that. But for me, I think the biggest thing was when I hit my freshman year in college, um, I was in a dorm. We had these suites. So there were four bedrooms with eight guys total in the suite, with the common living room and bathrooms. And I was the only white kid in that dorm room situation. And so we had a couple of guys, African-American guys from Miami who liked to turn the heat up to 90 degrees in the room and suffocate us. Um, we had and a Puerto Rican guy. And I was and so we like we we had this great mix. And I started going to church with my friends. And it was the first time that I acutely felt what it was to be a minority in a church setting. And even to the point where like, it was clear that I wasn't welcome in some of the churches that I went into. And so that, to me, that started a conversation where we were able to have, because it's college too, so college kids are dumb and willing to talk about anything and say offensive things and right. laugh about it. And so we were able to talk through a lot of things. And I think that, for me, really was a stirring to go, okay, I, I have to see things a little differently. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. And that's, that actually kind of sounds a, a similar to mine, because I grew up in Arlington, Texas, which is between Fort Worth and Dallas, it's where the Arlington, uh, it's where the Texas Rangers Stadium is. It's where the Cowboys Stadium is now. The Dallas Cowboys play, and so it's very much uh, suburban. Uh, it's very diverse at the same time, and I think people are surprised to hear that. Um, so I was exposed myself to to a lot of different backgrounds, and so I had the same mentality of colorblindness. People are just like, you know, you don't judge someone by their outward appearance, and I'm like great I can do that I can love all people I grew up in the church and so that's the mentality that I brought into the world uh and then so hearing things like people calling me if I'm watching the news and I hear people telling me you know uh, as a white man uh that you are part of this oppressive patriarchal system then I I would get a little you know a little hot under the collar and be like uh, a little uncomfortable because I didn't know I'm like I don't, I don't hate anybody right uh, and so the first time that I really kind of recognized that there was this impact that race had still in in our world, one, that there are still explicitly racist people in the world, you know, just the fact that I myself uh, don't have prejudice in my heart doesn't mean that there aren't, that doesn't still exist, right? Uh, but one of the things that, are, that made me recognize that that was still a role was uh, as a lifeguard, actually. And so I'm lifeguarding in college, and one of the things uh, that we encountered was a lot of the people that we jumped into were people of color. 
jump into the water to save were people of color. Uh, and so when you start thinking about, well, we're all equal, we're all equally made, we still have this, we all have the same blood with the flesh and bones, you know, what is it about this situation that, that is causing disproportionately uh, people of color to be impacted, you know, because I'm not jumping in the water for, you know, eight-year-old kids, you know, who are white, but I am jumping in the water for, for adults and children alike of all ages uh, who can't swim. And so when you think about access to pools and how, you know, that occurred in Jim Crow and it still reverberates today just because people's parents didn't have access to the pool, so they didn't feel comfortable maybe being taught how to swim. Uh, and so when you think back to that, this benign this enjoyable summertime activity and you think man what else where else is there uh disproportionalities existing and so that's kind of what got the conversation going in my own head and thinking through all these things myself so yeah it's really interesting i mean i'm not a very good swimmer and i didn't learn how to swim until i was 16 and i'm not even sure if i would call this swimming that i actually do um would barely even call it dog paddling i would more call it light floating light floating (laughs) Surviving. It's more like learning how to helium yourself, you know, just a slight bit, just to get above the water, yep. you know, and not drown. But in terms of treading, we don't tread water. We don't do that very well. Um, and uh, and it's it's really interesting because you mentioned like just the Jim Crow era and in the context of that, these little things they they seem like they're just really little, like swimming. This is like a life survival technique, right? Like, mm-hmm. if I don't know how to swim, and um, and if you're like me with a lot of white friends, that. Um, when they want to get married, they want to get on a boat and then they want to throw you off that boat just to see if you'll float. You know, this happens to me a lot, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong. And let me, t- and, I've and never I, had anyone try to throw me off a boat. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Cause they're not curious whether or not you're going to float or not. They want to know if I'll just know how to swim, you know, cause they know that there's some, some issue going on here, you know, and they're curious to kind of figure it out. Um, but the other thing that I thought about, you know, is that in, in the context of the trauma, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about what my first, uh, like my first awareness as far as I can go back in terms of race and sort of understanding it, which is going to be difficult to sort of recall because I feel like it's been most of my life, of course, I've sort of recognized it. But um, the Middle Passage and sort of that, that, that traveling over, you know, sort of the 400,000, 500,000 people or um, black slaves, you know, that were coming over on that ship um, across dangerous waters. You know, I think that we, we talked a lot in one of our episodes on trauma about um, the phenomenon of epigenetics, you know, and how some of that is passed down, you know, through history and, um, and through the generations. You know, I think there is something to that, you know, that we, we don't only carry the legacy of Jim Crow in the context of things like not swimming, but we also carry the legacy, you know, of the Middle Passage as well. And, um, yeah, so it's really like an unfortunate, you know, kind of thing, you know, that is starting to turn a little bit like my nephew's learning how to swim and things like that now and you know he's eight you know he's a little behind the curve we didn't throw him in the water you know at three like some folks (laughs) do you know but but that's what we did but my uh like initial context of race I mean I I feel like I've always been somewhat aware right I mean you're like you know I'm, I'm brown and um the time I think growing up in the church and growing up in the community like I knew that my predominant community was black you know where where we lived and what we were doing, um, the practices that we had, the music we listened to, things of that sort. When I went to school, though, and at public school, it was clear, in a sense, you know, at a certain age. And I would say that everything was kind of normal, you know, or at least you'd think it was normal, up until about, you know, I was like 
five or six, you know, and then at that point, you know, they start to break you out, you know, into talented and gifted, you know, and things like that. And I remember my, and I tell this story on the podcast, one of our early, um, earlier episodes about how my mom swept into the school. I'll tell this very dramatically. She swept into the school <laughs> and um, <clears throat> angry as she, she was not an angry black woman, but she was a very intelligent black woman and kn- knew how to advocate for her son said, um, so these talented and gifted programs that were predominant in the 80s, right? We did this in like every public school had like a tag program, right? And um, all of the white kids were in the tag program, you know, talented and gifted. And my mom goes, why is my child not in this program? And they go, well, we only have a certain number of spaces, you know, for these kids. And my mom goes, "Um, basically, baby, they're all talented and gifted. My child needs to be in here. And so it was that singular decision that made me aware, especially once I started to be separated from my other or, or, or from the other members of, of my cohort, then that um, there's a sniffle, mm-hmm. that um, I was now all of a sudden with an all white class. Mm-hmm. And the people I was hanging out with normally at church and in the community were in another class. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, not only am I with the white folks, and not only are the black folks over here, but I am now too white for the white folks or too white for the black folks and too black for the white folks, right? Now, all of a sudden, just because of a singular decision that was made for me, that was a good decision that was made for me, but it had consequences and there were sacrifices, you know, that were being made to, to sort of stay um, sort of ahead of the curve, I guess, and to begin to access all those opportunities that came from that choice, you know, so um, different experiences, you know, yeah. it's not swimming, but... It's been fascinating for us to watch the impact um, for our kids. They're in DCPS schools, and um, our particular schools are really great neighborhood schools. We're devoted. That's for us a philosophical commitment that we're committed to our local neighborhood schools. Schools are fantastic. They are 30% white. And so my kids, just the issues that are raised, the way that the kind of research that they're having to do, the the sto- the way that history is being told is so different than what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And watching how that's having an impact on them, and I love it. I think it's, I think they're getting a fuller history than than I did, and a fuller perspective than I did growing up. Um, and so for us, that's been something that we've we've really enjoyed. But also then watching how things hit in middle school. It's almost like watching people's eyes get opened mm-hmm. in this context where we've like we've watched them grow up from pre-K mm-hmm. over the this is our ninth year in this school system, and now watching it going like hold on like wait a second why are you start you guys starting to to push apart from each other now mm-hmm. just over issues of ethnicity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. Qu- I mean, I'm, one I totally commend you for putting your kids in DCPS schools. I mean, just I mean obviously there's so much. Um, so much to think about around that, you know, and controversy around DCPS, which uh, we're not going to get into this too much, you know, but, but, um, question just, 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 that just came to my mind around that is, um, you know, do you suspect that your kids will want to stay in DCPS or would that be your preference throughout their uh, high school career? If that's yeah, I mean, we're, we're in eighth grade with our oldest and oh, that's amazing. sixth grade with our middle. And yeah, so we're, amazing. We're, we're facing DCPS high school application processes oh, that wow. open on next Monday. Yeah, wow. And so that's really, really anxiety-inducing. Yeah, I really commend you for that. And here's the reason why I'll, I'll say I really commend you for that. I mean, you guys know I'm, I'm a social worker and have worked in these systems, worked in the school system at D.C. before, like, a lot. And um, uh, DCPS just hired a new guy, you know, now. He's just started, I think, this week, you know, as sort of the lead. And... Um, um, from Indianapolis and um, 
I think it was announced yesterday, right? I think it was announced yesterday, yeah. And so we're glad to have someone new at the helm, as opposed to the last debacle that we had, all this corruption around money and placement, and then all the stuff going on through the schools around, like, not reporting, you know, like, grades and all that kind of stuff. All of it's just kind of crazy, you know what I mean? And so, um, but for a white family, you know, to go in and then to intentionally, like, enroll your kids into DCPS schools... Um, knowing all of that drama and not pulling out as a reaction, you're not doing white flight, you know, which I really commend you on because I'm, because you, you know, it, you can see it and your kids can see it. They're in school with 90% black people, like, Mm. you know, all of the time, you know? And, um, yeah, anyway, so just, I guess there's a thank you in that for me. I think, you know, because there's no other way we're going to change it, you know, because I know that if black folks only stay there, that things won't change. Mm. Sorry. I don't know. That's yeah. that, and you even alluded to in, in one of the sermons in your six part series that we talked about uh, that you did over the summer, you talked about the history of the church and racism and slavery specifically. But you also talked about a little bit of the history of D.C. and a name that was D.C. used to be known for, still is known for uh, because of white flight. And, yeah. and you talked about that specifically. Yeah, well, D.C.'s history, and D.C.'s history is really complicated, too, because we have this federal district, and um, and, and particularly post-Civil War, in the, in, a massive influx of freed slaves as African-American people wanted to get close to the White House because it was safe. They, the idea was it's going to be safer if I get to the White House. And so um, they were, there were municipal elections that were granted in 1868 by Congress, um, to African-American male residents to vote in municipal elections. But then just six years later, from 1874 to 1973, for 100 years, there were no municipal elections. It took until 1973 before the, the Home Rule Act where they restored the right for D.C. residents to even elect their own local government. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Could yeah. you imagine? No. I mean, no. The, the voting rights in D.C. are their own issue still. <laughs> True. But not even being able to elect local government officials. The, there wasn't yeah. a – the first African-American mayor of D.C. didn't uh, – wasn't appointed until 1967. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Interesting. And that whole history – and we might get into a little bit more, but I do want to kind of get into a little bit about the church specifically. Um, and because that was something you, you talked about, how – you know, it's typical for our exposure when we're exposed to different things like that, and that's why you have your kids enrolled in, in uh, schools here. Uh, that was my experience in the church growing up in Dallas, despite the fact that it was pretty diverse, was that we're kind of around people of uh, likeness, you know, like me, and uh, or like-minded even. And then in the church was probably a little bit more segregated, uh, at least the churches that I grew up in, in Dallas, Texas. And so... You're absolutely right. The things that I hear now are completely different than what I heard, you know, if I heard anything at all. Uh, And so what was it that kind of compelled you to because you had three years ago, you you did like a one day thing on race. And then what compelled you to do that, first of all? And then what was the response to it? Yeah, I, I think for me, some of it was being in a different context. Obviously, that opens my eyes more. Some of it, too. I think 2012, 2013, just nationally, we started to see events that brought issues of racial division back up to the forefront in every, I mean, just in an ongoing way in media cycle and in the news and with with shootings that were be, that were actually being reported mm-hmm. and and so um, it was almost four years ago now actually that we it was com- kind of coming out of the stuff in Ferguson 
Missouri that we, uh, I, as a pastor, I was looking at our church, and our church is diverse. And we, I, of course, I would love to see even greater diversity in our church, but we are we are ethnically diverse. And I was looking around and wondering, like, we don't know how to talk about these things. And so kind of waited for Ferguson to, to at least cool down in the news cycle a little bit, because I didn't want to just do a reactionary, we're going to talk about this one isolated event, mm-hmm. but realizing that we needed a grid to be able to speak to each other theologically and as human beings. And so we did a one-day, like, three-hour seminar. I put together a panel of members, so an ethnically diverse panel of members, and um, and had this three-hour event on a Saturday. And it, it we didn't have as much of a showing as I hoped, and I got massive pushback. Wow. I had people that were angry, and I was shocked by that. My yeah. naive pastor self was like, <laughs> no, we love Jesus. <laughs> so we're going to read the Bible, and the Bible's clear about these things, and it doesn't avoid... What are they angry about? So the things what that they, they I got, um, I got stuff like, why are we even talking about this? Um, talking about race perpetuates racism was something that uh, people will say, you know, that, that I got. People saying, like, if we, by talking about this, you're making it worse. And I'm like, well, no. Um and I got some people that were saying things like, like, why wasn't I the one you chose to speak into it? And that was kind of self-evident because you just <laughs> told you me the reason. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why? <clears throat> okay. Um, and But I also got people that politicized it and immediately tied it to other issues, particularly conservative political issues, and said, all right, why are you talking about race and about not this thing? Mm-hmm. And so those that, for me as a pastor, I was kind of at a decision point there of like, okay, am I going to back off on this because it touched a nerve? I don't really have, you know, people, they, you people are born with fight and flight. I don't have flight <laughs> by nature. And so, um, but I also wanted to be wise with our church. And so what I did was a year later, I introduced a reading series for our church um, where I took the books that I kept hearing people talk about. And I said, well, I'm going to read them. And here I put out the reading list and then read, I think, a dozen books in like three months and invited the church to read them with me. And then I wrote responses, just not book reviews, just responses as a white pastor in D.C. Um, And then from that, we started a discussion group that pulled together every ethnic minority in our church. And that discussion group really cultivated discussion and prayer over a year that that we continued that dialogue. And so then this past summer, we were finally at a point where I was like, okay, we're going to do this again. But rather than just a one-off, we're going to do a six-week series and do everything we can to unpack and give our people, our church, a grid to be able, in a foundation that we can go back to and say, this is what Scripture says about who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's great. Um, and I would commend you for you know standing in and leaning into that. Uh, because for me, and this will kind of help people understand, why, why are like two-thirds of this these people up here talking to our white dudes talking about race? Uh, with me, with with you, with, with Brandon, <laughs> with uh, me. and that's because it was that was my own history. Was I was perplexed by things like Ferguson, and to be honest, it was a white pastor who I respected and I l- would listen to his sermons on the podcast. Uh, and I think it was it was like 2012, 2013, right? That Ferguson was, was occurring, and I was perplexed by that. I was it was one of those things where I was, you know, why are people. You know, riding in their city and destroying their own property um like those are things that i thoughts that i had and it was it took a white pastor someone who looked like me who i respected to say okay maybe there is something here maybe there's something i should be listening to and so that's now with behind the scene podcast that's why i think it's important that more white people do speak up and address it and that's why we didn't bring bring in a black pastor you know to to be honest one reason uh, one, because I think you have a lot of good things to say, but I think that it, it is important 
for for white people especially who have historically had difficulty with this topic to see other people who look like them to kind of give them the green light to jump in yeah i had a similar challenge i mean similar doubts and fears i think is probably a better way to say it than challenge um, where I, so we had two guys that preached as part of the series of the six weeks that weren't me. We had a guy that's we're part of something called Acts Twenty Nine Network, and so I'm I'm in some I'm in leadership in different ways in that network. And we had Acts Twenty Nine's director of diversity, who's a good friend of mine named Doug Logan, come in and kick off the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but Doug challenged me, and he said because I was like Doug, who, I'm, who am I to lead this series? And I got some pushback from people in our church too. So who are you to lead this series? Yeah. Um, but Doug challenged me and said, "You are their pastor. Yeah. You're not their white." pastor you are their pastor and you need to lead your church and lead your church well and so i needed that corrective too to be able to step in um and then we had pastor chewy who's on staff with us but he he was able to step in as well but but yeah i had the same kind of doubts and hesitancies yeah Yeah, i think it's it's good i mean i'll add an affirmation to this strategy you know just as the brown person at the table um and here again just a story that i've told on the podcast before you know i was in colorado springs in 2017 and, you know, go back to, I think it was maybe the whiteness episode, you know, you can sort of hear a full accounting of this story, but basically there was a, a man that approached me and called me a nigger to my face, you know, and I was in a public space, it was very loud, he was very loud, and you could hear the audible gasps um, in this department store of all of the young looking white women with all their pregnant, ba- like, bellies, <laughs> you know, at like the checkout counter, and um as I'm walking out, the cashiers, um, you know, lovely, you know, young white women, you know, we're so sorry that you had to endure this here. And my response to them was, next time you see something in your family or somewhere else, it's going to mean a whole lot more coming from you than it will from me. Because I already, I mean, no one would tell me that if mm-hmm. they thought I was credible, right? They wouldn't say something to me if they thought it was credible. And he was loud about it. Now think about all of the undercurrent that's going on where people don't say what they're actually thinking, right? But they might say it in front of you. Mm-hmm. They won't say it in front of me, but they might say it in front of you. And for a um, not super woke, I call them super woke, so not like white guilt and all this kind of stuff, you know, I'm like... <laughs> I'm black. I don't want you to stop being white. Like that's not what it is, you know. But there is something about being aware and and a be and really about being awake enough um, to be able to speak to those that look like you with intelligence, with compassion, with empathy, understanding what the trauma is for white people in this narrative. Because there is something really difficult in the um, in the psychology and the ego, as we've talked about, um, for a white person and in particular white men when it comes to the topic of race, um, uh, the empowering of people that are black and brown, um, and the narrative or the rhetoric that is threatening, right? And, ha- and, and why is it threatening? And I would actually toss it to you, like, well, why is that rhetoric threatening? What have you learned? What did you learn through the series? Um, did you get pushback again? And what did it sound like this go around? Because <laughs> obviously your church has changed, right? And it, it has, changed yeah. a lot, right? And it's DCs, you get a high amount of turnover. So for some people, it was the first time they didn't read the book list with you, right. all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, this time it was a 180 from the first time around. People, I felt like our church was hungry for it, mm. eager for it. Um, I think the most exciting aspects for me, we're, our church is also really incredibly politically diverse and an even spread, and um, and we, I didn't get any politics push, but like people, we've kind of weeded out some of that nonsense of, like these, we're not, we're, we are not a partisan church, 
and but we also don't shy away from issues that have been politicized and so we just won't put up with people turning them into politicized issues within the church um but like you said we have people coming in and so that's part of honestly why we wanted this too is now we've got the audio and videos of this series that's there and lives on our website and on our app and is it's so people can see like hey this is if <laughs> if you have questions about how we're going to handle this kind of topic go to it listen to it go and experience it um, and so it really was a 180. The people did, I mean, st- still some folks had a hard time with it. And um, I think for, I don't know why it's so hard for white people. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a better answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, I think people do, I think there is, you can get into the sociological aspects of, of people having an individualized focus versus a communal focus. And, you know, that I, I'm not this way, therefore it's not the issue versus understanding the systemic issues of society. I think that's, that's there. I think that um, as I experience people, though, I think there's a, a fear of dealing with it because it, because there's a confusion between between recognizing call, and calling out wickedness and evil and feeling a need for personal repentance in light of it. Mm-hmm. And people don't know how to, how to navigate that, and at least in the church. And if if people are in Christian circles, that they would they might even use those terms of feeling the need to say like, well, I'm so sorry, personally, but then going like, but wait, how do I deal with this? Because I didn't. That's not personally how I've handled myself, and um, being able to give people the freedom to say, hey, that thing that happened is wrong, mm-hmm. and it's evil. Yeah. Yeah. And that that we can call it that yep. and still lift up people that do evil things as those who bear God's image and likeness and need to right. be dignified as well. And even some of the denial, I mean, like there's education around this, right? That yeah. has to happen. And um, our episode on trauma, uh, you know, we talked to, or whichever one it was, I can't remember, but um, talking about, and we really need, need to do this in season two, really talk about like what is white trauma <laughs> and really unpack it a bit. You know, I think this is a f- phrase, I don't know if we coined it, <laughs> you know, um, but um, the idea that um, if you were, say, growing up in a family in your, your entire life, you get into your mid to late 30s, um, early 40s, and, rec- and, and, and your father dies, and then all of a sudden you learn from your mother that you were adopted. And that your family isn't actually your family. You've actually lived in an, in some kind of way that was actually not the truth of your experience, right? It wasn't wholly that experience. Does it mean that you weren't loved by your father? Does, but but there's an aspect of that that becomes a lie in a sense. I think this is how we're um, that that we need to like approach the whole um, concept and the construct of privilege in America mm-hmm. is that this is not something that you did voluntarily. <laughs> it was also something white folks that was done to you. And it starts all the way back at the foundation of the country. And fortunately or unfortunately, while I have to deal with being black, <laughs> you have to deal with being white. You know, And there are a lot of things that I didn't control or couldn't control that my ancestors did to each other. And I can't control that either. And then some of that, ha- there's, there's some culpability in that. There's some emotional connection and culpability with all of that. Um, but there is also this like thing that's weighed on me because of what was done to you and then yeah. how you've lived as a benefactor, as a beneficiary of a, of a system that has promoted you and uplifted you and given you a 300 year head start yeah. ahead of me. You know, I think yeah. that's hard. That's hard for any person. Yeah. You know? And I, I don't think that I know for me, I mean, it took my friend Doug, who's black pastor and in leadership. And I love and respect Doug saying, you need to do this for me to, for me to be able to make the jump between, 
just, oh gosh, I feel bad about this and don't know what I'm supposed to do because I feel bad. Yeah. Versus saying, oh no, if there's something here, if there is privilege, which is undeniable, if there is privilege, then that's something to be stewarded and I actually right. need to leverage that. Amen. Yeah. I had a breakthrough moment that way. I was coming back from a Nats game and we live on the Good. hill and so I was coming back with my boy. He's nine. He loves baseball, obsessed with baseball. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he, he <laughs> primarily primarily loves the Cubs. Oh. But um, but also cheers for the Nets. Good. Okay. So Good. He's Good. got two fun teams that he's been cheering for. But we're on our way back, grabbing the circulator bus, and you know, bus pulls up, and, and it's late. We stayed late, and so it was a bunch of people that worked at Nats Park, and and a few fans. And then you know, the bus pulls up, and there was a guy that came up, an African American man with one leg in a wheelchair, comes up. The bus lowers, and the ramp folds out, and three older white folks that clearly don't live in D.C. And just got on, walked up the ramp. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you you not watching like any social awareness here? And I watched it unfold as um, an older African-American woman tried to gently say, excuse me, can you please let the gentleman on the bus? You need to let the gentleman on the bus first. And then the ramp will fold up and was trying to explain it. And the people didn't look. They looked into the bus and didn't respond. Somebody else started to speak up, and I looked around, and the, it, and the temperature started to rise, and you know, four or five African American people started to get louder and louder, and then finally, I I spoke up, and I I'm not a small guy, and so I realized that's the case too, <laughs> but I spoke up and said, "Hey, get off the bus! This guy's in a wheelchair. Let him on!" And they went, "Oh," and like and looked around, suddenly, like suddenly, they oh, hear I there, somebody spoke all of a sudden, like nobody else was even in existence, mm-hmm. and so they stepped off the bus guy in the wheelchair goes on the guy folds up the ramp everybody just stood there and watched glared at them as they walked on but then watching the people that were standing waiting for the bus talk to my son they didn't thank me they did they you know thank you sir but they they talked to my son and said did you see what your daddy just did that's the way that you treat people and that for me was a moment too where i was like okay i hate that i had to step in there I hate that when I spoke up, somebody finally paid attention. But it is the reality that we face. My theology tells me we live in a very broken place mm-hmm. that has very little hope outside of redemption. And so I shouldn't be surprised by things like that. Yeah. But still, it shocked me. It made me real. That for me, too, is part of realizing okay, this is a way to be able to steward privilege because for good or bad, I am a fairly physically large white male (laughs) with a strong voice. And when I speak up, people have a tendency to listen. And so now it's a matter of me realizing, okay, I've got to leverage that voice that I have to be able to draw attention where it needs to be drawn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's powerful. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm moved by it. I think, uh, yeah. And steward is a good word. And I think you, you mentioned earlier that, um, and it's literally indoctrination uh, that we we don't see because part of the theology, and this is what I learned in your sermon, and I'm going to ask you to kind of explain a little bit uh, the church's role in in that personal theology that says it is me, the individual, and it kind of forgets about community. And that was kind of all had a genesis in slavery, right, where preachers or slave owners were, were not wanting— uh, their slaves to to hear the gospel right and, and some am i mis- misstating that no you're not misstating it i think yeah people don't realize the way that christianity was preached to to 
enslaved African people in the United States. And frankly, also, I think there's a false narrative, too, that I want to be careful about of the idea that Christianity is white man's religion, Mm -hmm. because there was a narrative that was pressed that said that was from slave owners saying we've taken these heathen African people and they should be so glad Mm -hmm. because even though they're suffering under our watch, we've secured their eternity by giving them Christianity. The reality is most of the early church was faced by was was shaped by northern African voices. And so the church fathers, Tertullian was from Tunisia, Origen and Athanasius were from Egypt, Augustine was Algerian. Um, And so if you read W.E.B. Du Bois and Henry Mitchell, they've argued, and I'm convinced by their arguments that that African religion is the only black institution that survived slavery. That Christianity was was thriving in Africa, and and so that we even see similarities today in traditional African American churches with African churches, mm-hmm. and so that's one myth that I think needs to be debunked. But then once people were here, the way that Christianity was preached to them um, was was not what I would recognize as the gospel. They because Christians owned slaves, and they differentiated between spiritual equality and actual equality, and they were very clear to say, you getting baptized and freed from sin does not mean you're freed from bondage and chains in physical life. Mm -hmm. You reading the Exodus narrative about the Israelites being freed from captivity, like don't read that too much, which is still why African-American churches focus, begin with the Exodus event and with Moses primarily, Mm -hmm. where most, I mean, I'm in in a reformed stream, we we typically begin with Paul. Mm -hmm. And they are not different Bibles. We need right. to bridge those connections, but it's it's a different starting point. Um, and because the slave owners at the time believed that Christian ministry was going to be, and there's quotes on this, that it was economically unsettling for their enterprises. Um, and so there was a heavy emphasis on obedience. There was a highly edited version of Christianity that was preached and a gospel that had no social impact. And, and there was an emphasis in particularly the American South to, to just preach the gospel mm-hmm. and avoid divisive topics. And that's, that actually sounds familiar. I think we could go to any church in the South right now and hear that said, to, you know, this weekend. Right? Oh, like, this is right now. If you're right now, like the black now. hole that is Christian Twitter. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. is the, the, one of the most depressing places on earth. Yeah. And uh, to go there and, yeah, you say anything about race or ethnicity. Or social justice. And social justice. Yeah. And it's immediately you are a cultural Marxist. Mm-hmm. Just preach the gospel. Why are you getting into these political issues? But then you go to issues of life mm-hmm. and abortion and people are suddenly very socially concerned. Yeah. And so how has that manifested through the church and evolved over the years? And that kind of distortion has been perpetuated and yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that selectivity in the white American evangelical church um, is devastating because I think that right now we've we've seen people cozy up and look to political power, which again we could get into all kinds of messy topics into that, mm. um, but in ways that have done terrible damage to the witness of the gospel um, and the. The idea that really kind of the the finneyism and revivalism of a personalized salvation that has no impact into our lives um, doesn't match at all with the Christianity we see in the New Testament. So, are people justifying? Because there's a there's a close tie. You know, we talk about America being a Christian nation, and and obviously, you know, there's a lot of complexity there. But overall, 
Christianity is basically the the religion of the land, right? At least by what people profess. I mean, it's changing. Yeah, it's changing, but you know, it it has ro- deep roots in in our history. Is that yeah. one thing that people have used to justify inaction uh, in these topics? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think it's important to recognize that some of the, our most venerated theologians. Um, we're, we're part and parcel to perpetuating slavery itself, mm-hmm. too. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. Mm-hmm. George Whitfield fought for slavery in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Hodge defended slavery. Samuel Davies baptized hundreds of slaves but refused to connect freedom to life, and it wasn't the American church that stood up. It, was, it took British gunboats to end the slave trade, mm-hmm. and it took the Civil War to end the institution of slavery, mm-hmm. not the church. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a there's one of my heroes is a, a preacher from London that named Charles Spurgeon and he said by what means you, thank you were the fetters riveted on the wrist of our friend who sits there a man like ourselves though of black skin it is the Church of Christ that keeps his brethren under bondage if it were not from for that church the system of slavery would go back to the hell from which it sprung and so Christ's free church bought with his blood must bear the shame of cursing Africa and keeping her sons in bondage. It, Spurgeon was invited to the South, and then he was he was going to make his only trip to the United States, and um, was encouraged strongly not to go because Southern pastors were burning his sermon books. Mm. Wow. Mm. Um, and so there is an indelible mark that of inaction in the church that is perpetuated today when people still use the same cry of "Why are you getting into divisive topics? Just preach the gospel." Mm-hmm. I hear that at times. Again, in our church, we take things on pretty head on. And so if somebody's new and they brought something like that up, we, we, I would just kind of laugh and say, well, you haven't been around here very long, have you? Yeah. Um, we, don't, we don't avoid the hard things. And I think it's kind of fascinating that uh, you mentioned, and, and I've thought about this, that the, the black church, the miracle of the black church, where yeah. you have the oppressed bringing, uh, taking on the religion of their oppressors, and I think that that's kind of a fascinating thing because they lamented in that suffering and then took on that that religion, that that belief, uh, which I think is kind of fascinating. I think one of the things that amazes me about the black church is the ability to en- endure and, and experience suffering while still being overwhelmingly filled with joy. And that's something that I don't see a lot in the discussion today. The, the civil rights movement in the 1960s was a theologically driven movement. It was mm-hmm. driven with a vision for hope. Dr. King was a theologically driven activist that was everything he did. There's, there's a whole book on uh, Dr. King and the Imago Day and how that fueled what he did. And what we're seeing today doesn't have the same kind of foundation. And so I think it, instead what we're seeing is reactionism and backlash and anger that's driving everything. And so there isn't a vision of hope of where we're headed um, and and it's making it so that the discussions, when we enter into lament, there's no, there's, we, we go from life and suffering to death with no hope of resurrection mm-hmm. and um, without that joy that has just filled the historic black church. And I do think that's miraculous. I, I think it's nothing short of miraculous. Yeah. I, mean, I think the point on that, too, with the modern day civil rights activism and while I love the concept of Black Lives Matter, you know, and even the movement to, to a degree it is expressively sort of against a platform of faith. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why is because the black church has experienced its own amount of hypocrisy, right? Yeah. Um, an extreme amount of hypocrisy. And 
the, the joy that comes from the purity of um, the life of Jesus and being saved and then being redeemed and then um, being raised with Christ until eternity and a life lif- lived with him and in partnership um, was being emulated by people that were adulterers and thieving and we see this in our modern day culture, prosperity gospel and the like, you know, that has sort of co-opted a lot of the messaging. Interestingly enough, to your point, also something that's been adopted from the white oppression, right? Yeah. You know, even the prosperity gospel was something that's that, that's even been taken on to, to this black ethic, black church ethic. And so um, now when it comes to these movements, you know, there isn't anything to lean into. There isn't a Martin Luther King Jr. leader who's bringing in the ethic of joy and the um, relationship with with God, even being in relationship um, with people who love God, even though you may not love God yourself, <laughs> that you can be around the infectious um, joy and perseverance. Um, the Romans five adage, you know, that it's suffering that begets character, and character, you know, um, this this hope that that does not disappoint, right? And um, we're just not singing those old spirituals anymore like we used to. In fact, they are lost to us, you know, as black people or as a younger generation of black children, yeah. black youth. Those spirituals have, have been lost, you know. I was shocked reading Carter Woodson's material, mm-hmm. DC native Carter Woodson, that was writing in the early 1900s. Um, and he was recognizing the systemic problems uh, in black, manipulative black, black preachers in the black church at that time. And yeah. so the things you're recognizing, we've come yeah. to the full fruition of that. I think it's important to recognize, too, like we just to, I mean, we, I've dogged a whole bunch of theologians in the church <laughs> that there is the American history, the cre- history of American Christianity and white American Christianity is filled with stumbling points, but there's also, that's not the whole story either. Um, that, there, that white Christians did advance the gospel globally, and there were people that opposed slavery publicly and, right. and fought. And so John Wesley, mm-hmm. the Quakers, Jonathan Edwards Jr. corrected the sins of his dad, the Second Great Awakening, and they were joined by David Walker and Frederick Douglass and Nat mm-hmm. Turner. And so in Reconstruction, it was largely white Christians that were trying to help and lift people up that then that got undercut and crushed by Jim Crow. Um, but it it is th- those lingering issues even got into the ministries in the 20th century revivals with Dwight Moody and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. I mean, he still had segregated <laughs> meetings until 1954. Yeah. And um, that yeah. kind of typifies the white moderate that Dr. King addressed in his letter from Birmingham jail. Right. And then we, I mean, even to some of this modern things around the civil rights movement, we're talking about interracial marriage, interracial relationships too. That was a big problem. Um, and then um, the integration of schools, right? And yeah. so for a lot of the white Christian America then, you know, if you listen to James Baldwin's, you know, like a lot of his teachings, you know, um, or even some of his recording, you know, of what white folks were thinking during that time, it was, you know, God would forgive the sin of adultery, but he wouldn't forgive the sin of integration. You know, it's a really powerful statement, you know, to make, you know, from people that were a part, not just leaders, but they were actually a part of the laity of the white church, actually believing that and then walking that out. And those were the ones, they were the evangelical Protestant Christians that were out there doing the protest, you know, when that... Um, that that group of five black students, you know, were working to integrate that 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 first school. I mean, it was it's crazy to think that those were people you were going to church with and you were hearing the gospel preached every Sunday, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the good news, right? But it was only good. It was good for you. And you know? and, and yet somehow again to what, um, what Mark was saying about the miracle of the African American church, 
the research I did said that by the 1970s, it estimated that there were 24 million African-American Christians in the United States that were virtually unknown in broader Christian circles because wow. no one was publishing them. They weren't allowed into white seminaries. Um, but the movement was flourishing as they took on the faith of their oppressors. And I don't know another example in world history yeah. where we see that kind of vibrant faith in that kind of a context. That's awesome. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Can I just make this one point? Yeah. Like, I was having a conversation with a friend today about, you know, especially in this Christian ethic, you know, maybe the charismatic renewal and things like that, you know, about the, the notion of revival. <clears throat> And what is revival? Sort of this renewal of the human spirit in the context of God and giving your life to him. And I asked this question, this person I was on the phone with today, about, you know, how do we, in this Western world, this Western context, you know, with so much content, you know, books, CDs, movies, you name it from a Christian perspective, right? We have so much product that we're pumping out around the world, and yet we don't have one transformed city to speak of, you know? We haven't even transformed our nomenclature or our conversation around these social issues, you know? And so if we are meant to be, quote-unquote, leading in the context of all of this, you know, then it behooves us to actually consider that we've lost credibility, you know? We have to actually admit that and acknowledge that. Um, as moral leaders, we have to then begin to learn what it means, as John Stott would say, another English guy, right, um, would say, how do we engage without compromising our values? But we have to engage culture, you know, and have to learn how to do that in a way that is equitable, that is meaningful, that is relevant to what's going on in the world around us. And if we're not learning how to do that, then revival, you know, for the Christian group or congregation, you know, is but a thing. But it, it when when you said that about like 24 thousand, you no, know, million. just a million, 24 million, let me not get it wrong, 24 million. I mean that is consequentially the numbers of a you know of a revival of a movement you know going on in um, in 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 black people during that during that era um, that is Jesus moving yeah perhaps you know wh whether you believe in Christ or not you know that there's something going on some spiritual movement going on within the masses there you know that's relegated to the healing and the miracle of the black church for their for our healing yeah. <laughs> and maybe even for the healing of the nation maybe it's bomb you know for the healing of the and, and, and maybe it can still be bomb for the healing of the nation i don't know well and just i mean also right now we already kind of said like the idea of america as a christian nation i mean you grew up in texas growing up in chicago i don't think i it was fed that very much no? okay. <laughs> yeah. it just wasn't it's part a, of it what was, i was taught yeah. just part of texas history which <laughs> texas history isn't taught outside of texas but yeah it is the, the republic no, of not. texas <laughs> it is the republic um, of, <laughs> republic of <laughs> texas right? but um but i do think right now that if what is what we're seeing culturally is the death of american civil religion then as a mm. pastor i'm i'm glad for it um, because at least it, people don't have as much incentive to pretend anymore. And if the church doesn't hold a place of political and cultural power, then I think actually what that means is that other uh, Christians of every other ethnicity have a lot to learn from the black church wow. because they can see how theology and really believing and in, in and following Jesus has led to incredible joy in the midst of marginalization. Yeah. I'm going to the black church to tell them that. I'm going right to Atlanta to tell Bernice King she need to get it together. And I'm going over to some other places and saying, look, all this other stuff that we've been co-opted in, and I'm serious about it, like I'll be the first person to kind of say, listen, we have to, anyway, we have to clean up our act too in order to be exactly what what you're talking about here. So. And the last 
two minutes, you guys just basically created the trailer for season two. I mean, you talked <laughs> about revival. I mean, that's it. I there think it that's is. it. And I think we're coming I'll up come on back time and talk here. About that. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll bring Bill back to talk about that. She uh, says we can go whatever. Oh man. Whatever we want. Oh man, oh man! I was gonna say we, we bonus sh- track. I know bonus track. <laughs> <The> bonus track. <laughs> Deleted scenes. Deleted. Oh uh, no, we got too many of those. I have to kill you if I put those uh, out. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I was gonna say I think that. Uh, so basically, to kind of put a bow on it, and then we'll get into some calls to action and some resources. I know that you were instrumental in, in shaping some things for you. You even mentioned the book list earlier, uh, but the idea is that, uh, or not the idea, but what we're trying to get at is that. Um, there was this idea in, in American history uh, that tracked with slavery and oftentimes justified it to maybe absolve the you know responsibility or the consciences of, of slaveholders. Uh, you, we talked about the economic benefit and how this intentionally individualized theology that isn't even really authentically Christianity, which is overwhelmingly community-oriented, um, got kind of co-opted by uh, a political, I guess, philosophy that is intensely individual, right? And so if that's what we're being fed over the last 200 years, um, then it it is incumbent on us to kind of lean in and say, what is the history? How is my indoctrination of that, you know, literally in church pews every Sunday, what is that doing to, to my programming, so to speak, and, and how is that influencing my worldview? And then how can my... What, how will my worldview change once I'm kind of awoken to, to that history? Um, and I think that that's, that's hugely important. So, and that's what we we tried to attempt to do today. Mm. There's so much more to talk about. I would encourage people yeah. to go listen to your sermon. There's so uh, much more. Or, uh, or read some books that you read and that you might have recommendations for. Um, yeah, I ch- did you have some books? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, it's gosh, it's hard to know where to start. I know. I've done. I did a. L- <laughs> I didn't. There is no sermon series that I've preached that I spent as much time and as and read as many books for. Um, there's. I mean, I right now I, I would recommend anything by John Perkins. I think he is yes, the last absolutely. voice that we have from the that era. Voice. That's right. That's still talking about unity and love and um, with a theological grid. And mm-hmm. so I I love John Perkins. He just has he has a book that just came out co- yes. called Come Dream with Me. That's that's the one. I, I got to spend some it. time with Dr. Perkins and one on one, and it was in a, a, such an incredible gift. Um, there's a guy named um, Dr. Eric Mason, who's a personal mentor of mine in Philadelphia. Um, he has a book called Woke Church that he just put out. It's fantastic. So if you're looking for, if you're a Christian looking for a clear view of the church and some actual actionable steps, um, it's a short and incredible book. Also a book by a guy named Tony Evans, who I grew up listening to preach, um, that it, called Oneness Embraced. That's really helpful. On the other side of things, I would encourage people to go back and read the authors that everybody else cites. People know how to do research on every other topic. They can figure it out here. Yeah. So the guys you see in, in footnotes, go and read them. Go read W.E.B. Du Bois' um, Souls of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. Go and read. Go and read Michelle Alexander's mm-hmm. New Jim Crow. New Jim Crow. And, and read, the, the, uh, read Carter Woodson. And read the authors that other people talk about and go to the source and find the information. Um, because you're gonna, it's gonna help to broaden your perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's helpful. And I, in every episode, we we kind of end with a call to action to give some people some actionable steps to, you know, to take what they've heard and and how can they build on it? How can they reflect on it over the course of the week, uh, or or what, whatever it is, whatever the case is. And so there's some things that you had mentioned in your your sermon. I don't want to you know just give these to you, but you you talked about lifting up the dignity 
of other people. Um, and you talked about a little bit too about repentance and why is that important? And so maybe kind of talk about repentance, what that looks like, and then maybe talk about some, some calls to action. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we've alluded to that even as we've talked tonight, um, that I think people confuse repentance with calling out evil. And um, repentance is when repent, we repent of sin when we have committed sin or been complicit in sin being committed. And um, I think that, that I think too often what happens when, as we talk about race is, um, is that people assume that it's only an issue that white people need to hear about and that otherness is only an issue white people need to hear about. And that's not true. So in our church, um, it's been fun to watch how some of our non-white members have received this, the everything and points where they're like, oh gosh, you got me because I had this conversation and I totally did that to this person. But you weren't supposed to be preaching to me. You were supposed to be preaching to them. Um, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's the gospel that reaches all of us. But, um, but in that... Um, I especially encourage our, our white members, like, don't just go grab your near, the nearest ethnic minority that's sitting next to you and start telling them how bad you feel. That is not repentance. Repentance is when you can name something that you've done that's wrong and you need to ask someone's forgiveness for it. Um, and that's not the same as calling out evil. It's, it wouldn't have been right for me to repent for the people that were getting on the bus. Mm-hmm. That's not, I, I didn't sin there. And I wasn't complicit in their sin, but I was willing to call out the wickedness mm-hmm. and say, get off the bus mm-hmm. so that the guy can get on. And so being able to distinguish between those, but leverage and steward what you've got and the voice that you have, I think that's important. Uh, but as far as some practical things, I, really, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher and, and a preacher. And so for me, it, it's very simple. Jesus said that there's two great commandments. Love God with everything you've got and love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so really it comes down to how we love our neighbor. All of these discussions are is actually recognizing human dignity and lifting it up and calling it out, saying you bear God's image and likeness. And there is there are reflections of his glory and beauty and goodness in every human being and being willing to lift those up. And so being a lifelong learner and getting to know people's history and having a holy curiosity when you meet people because everybody's story is different. And even painting in broad brushes of race doesn't get to individual experiences of where somebody grew up, what town they grew up in, what their zip code was, what their family life was like, and getting to know people lifts up dignity, cherishing them, just simple things of making eye contact and getting to know people and speaking up when you see evil and denouncing it, to call out the good and image of God that you see in people, Um, admitting when you don't have answers and just in learning, but treating people with dignity and respect. If we're going to see change, it's got to start with us as individuals and in 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 the way that we treat each other and yes there are systemic issues that we need to address and call out but it's got to start with us so um we i keep clinging to a, a quote from dr king that said we we've got to say realistically that we've come a long way but we still have a long way to go and we must realize that change does not roll in on wheels of inevitability but comes through struggle mm-hmm. so really i think the actionable step is to commit to the struggle and commit to continually lifting up the dignity of other human beings. Yeah. That's good. It's awesome. Yeah, and I think Thank you. the struggle thing is, is important because I think we just we get comfortable and we don't like to be challenged, and that goes into all aspects of our life. And I think that that is probably why we surround ourselves with people who are like us is because it's easy. It's easier for me to get along with you if you kind of know, if you have familiar context, if you're laughing at my jokes. Um, like it just it makes it an, an easier experience whereas if I have to go in, 
and you know embed myself in a community or surround myself with people who aren't like-minded uh, whether it's politically or racially or economically then there's discomfort and it turns a mirror back on me and sometimes we don't like what that reflection is so i think that we have to that i would say that that would be my call to action ending this season is to Im- you know embrace the struggle and what what could that look like you can you can exercise that you can practice that you can pick up a new hobby you can go you know commit to running a 5k and once you kind of experience uh practicing getting over discomfort in one area of your life then it's going to be so much easier for you to say man i survived that i'm better for it i'm no worse off uh and then how can you apply that to other areas of life but it doesn't even have to be hard. Like no. it can be. Like, I mean, no secret. Looking at me, I enjoy eating, <laughs> and there is no better awesome. way to get into people's lives than sharing food together yeah. and right. saying, like, "Hey, I want to eat with you and and share food with you, and let's get together." And I want to experience who you are in your hometown and where you grew up by what you eat. Like, let's go share a meal together. That's there's nothing hard about that. And yeah. if I mean, I guess for some people, they're picky eaters. I don't get it. <laughs> but, do not be picky. <laughs> don't do be, be picky, picky, but just go have food together and sit down and enjoy the time. It doesn't always have to be super intense and super focused. And I think, yeah, but it does have to be intentional. But it does have to be intentional. And that's one of the crises, or, or that's a part of the crisis, is that if you are black or brown, you have the you know you don't have the option you know of right. not seeing someone that is white. If you are white, you have the option. Yeah, you know, to not engage someone that is black or brown or some other minority. You know, yeah. you can actually get away with just not even seeing them. Yeah, if you don't want to. Hence your story. You know, like you just walked on the bus, you never even saw them or heard them. Yeah. you know, I want to go like Horton Years of Who, like a person as a person, no matter how small. You know what I mean? Like, kind of get it there. We're here. We're here. All the Who's from Whoville. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and who are we? And I think that's an ultimate question: Who are we? And who we want to be? Is, it, is that your call to action to go? No, Horton, that was just a teaser. My goodness. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to shout out my friend Kayon, um, who sent me another book called Wide Awake by Daniel Hill. Um, love you, Kayon. You're awesome. Um, all of our friends there. But um, my call to action is also a throwback to Martin Luther King Jr. as well, who had um, these Ten Commandments for the Civil Rights Movement. And, um, you know, how do I say? You know, we've been talking a lot about faith and Christianity in particular, but this was such an amazing movement. If it didn't do um, anything except this, which was to bring in everybody, regardless of what your race was, regardless of what your creed was, that you could come in and you could be a part of this fight and be a part of this struggle and commit to it in the context of a community. Here's the rubric. This is what you had to do. Martin Luther King, okay? Meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. Everybody. Doesn't require you to do anything, right? Except to show up and meditate on who he is and the reason why that is and why he was a special person and then try and emulate that, okay? I'm not going to unpack all these, but here they are just in order. To remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. So I'll say it again, that remember always that the nonviolent movement in America and across the world is not one that seeks justice. It is one that seeks justice and reconciliation more than it seeks victory. All right, walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. All men and women and children might be free. Sacrifice personal wishes in order that all 
might be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy, which is exactly what you're saying, Pastor Bill, about treating everyone with human dignity, right, and worth and value, that we're all worthy of connection and belonging. Seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. This is what it means to share our privilege. To refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, and of heart. Mm -hmm. Strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. And here's the last one. Follow the directions of the movement and of the captain on a demonstration. And I think allegorically what that can mean is a question to all of us. Who is your captain? Find a captain. And who you're leading, or, or rather who you are following, will determine where you're going. Um, another thing my grandmother used to say to me, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Mm-hmm. You know, And who you, surround your, who, who you surround yourself with will dictate, in a sense, at the tipping point, 2 to 4%, where we're all going to go in this country in the next 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. And we're not done yet. Things are going to get a whole lot more hot and a whole lot more intense. Yeah. And, uh, and it's because... Our skirt's been blown up, our hypocritical underbelly has been exposed, and whether you're in the church or outside of the church, we're all going to have something we need to face, and that is who we are. It is looking in the mirror and being able to live with ourselves and say, who am I? Who are the who's from Whoville? You know, who am I? Who are we? And who do we want to be? Well, that's a great way to end, I think, season one. And so I think we can pull... Booyah. Booyah. I think we charge full head on into season two. Uh, on MLK Day in January. So we end with MLK, and then we're going to open back up with MLK for season two. Uh, I feel like we were spiritually nourished here. I felt like this yes. was a good conversation. I feel like we thank went you. to church. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor so Bill. Thank you, yeah, Pastor seriously. Bill. Really fun to be here. It's really, amazing. Really appreciated it. And, uh, and I'd be remiss. Come back again. If, yeah. I didn't, if I didn't try to plug Nature Made one more time and say, <laughs> we want a sponsor for season two. So if anybody can I have knows me, I really need one. You can have one. So seriously, seriously I've been here. like holding back a cough on this microphone for the last, so I'm like, oh my God, I just don't want to make so much of a noise. But yeah. And that's 500 milligrams straight shot. <sighs> of, I've had like five of, of these in like an hour and it's not working. So fantastic. Yeah. Watch out for nausea later. I did read that uh, you, if you take too much vitamin C, oh, that really? could happen. Yeah. Oh, well. That's a thing. All but right, not with God. Nature Made because it's so well made and so well made yep so thank you all right thanks everyone thanks pastor bill thanks Thanks, bye everyone thanks for tuning into behind the scene just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, And then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then of course, if you think you know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.